Oh, I love that song. It so wonderfully describes what, uh, what's happening when uh, the Word of God is proclaimed. Uh, we're looking to see Christ. I, I, I pray that you're looking to see Christ in the proclamation of the Word. I pray that I would show you Christ, that the Spirit would use uh, whatever words and preparation to show you Christ, because in the end, that's what we need. Well, let's look at Jesus. Let's look at him from the Gospel of John. I invite you to turn there. John chapter 18, verses 28 through 40 is where we are this morning in our journey through this Gospel. The setting here is just before Jesus is to be crucified, and what's happening here is he's been arrested Peter has denied knowing Jesus, and he's been hauled off to first to meet with Annas, the father-in-law of the high priest. He then uh, spends time with Caiaphas, the high priest, and then uh, he is now brought before Pilate. Here we are in verse 28 of chapter 18. Let's give our attention to God's word as as it's being read, and I encourage you to follow along in your own Bible. John chapter 18, 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say this? Say it to you about me. Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation of the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover, so do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. This is the word of God. Let's uh, pray. I need help, and I'm sure you need help by the Holy Spirit. Lord, we sang, show us Christ. We want to see him. Lord, as the one who is called to proclaim Christ right now, I need your 
strength to utter what is true. To explain this word and apply this word for the sake of our edification, but more importantly, for the glory of Jesus. Because in seeing him, we are made like him. And so we say with the apostles, where else can we go? Lord Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. We need your word. So cause that to happen now, we pray. Father, glorify your son. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, I know this enough. Uh, I know enough about myself to to know that I I come off as a little cynical about the world. Uh, I think it's because I'd like to um, at least portray that that I long for something that can only be realized when Jesus returns, and so perhaps I sound cynical when I'm talking about the the state of the world. But that said, I I do at times feel the pull from the world enticing me and tempting me to buy into its priorities. Perhaps sometimes you feel the same. To think, perhaps, if if we just tweak this or that, elect him or her, adjust this law, enshrine that freedom, solve a particular injustice, then, then things, things would be better. I think you'd agree, though, if history proves anything to us, is that Uh, We humans simply cannot govern ourselves. From the beginning of time, civilizations have risen with great hope and they have ultimately crashed under the weight of their own decadence. And I'm thinking about even this nation now and I wonder, as great as a country as it is, and I'm a I'm a, an immigrant to it, and I've enjoyed the great benefits of being here. But sometimes I wonder if we're starting to crumble under our own decadence. We are, because of our own sin nature, we people in our natural state are self-indulgent creatures, aren't we? We are so easily intoxicated by power, and ultimately we are corrupted by it. Human civilizations crumble. Human kingdoms show themselves over time to be weak. But you know, God in his mercy has a, has a better idea for us. He wants to return, he wants us to return to where we belong under his gracious and sovereign rule. Now if you open the Bible and you read it from the beginning to the end, you can see that one of the themes that runs through it is there a, it's kind of a story of kingdoms in conflict. It, it all began when God created man and he placed him as a, a head steward over his creation. It was ideal, God dwelling with man in, in perfect communion. But that paradise, as we know, was marred when man, through Adam, chose love of self, that is idolatry. He chose that over the love of God. Ultimately, man chose to reject the kingship of God for self-rule. I've got this, Adam said. And ever since then, we've said, I've got this. 
And what Adam did brought him into direct conflict with the only sovereign over the universe. And since that time, the drama has unfolded through the centuries with man proving time and time again that any kingdom without God as king is a doomed project. It only leads to death. Yet because of God's everlasting love, he has since that time been unfolding his own plan to rescue a people from the futility and hopelessness of self-rule. God has been calling out a people from every human kingdom, from every tribe, from every language and nation on earth and he's calling them to himself and he has done this through his son, Jesus. And here's where we come to our text today. I want to remind you, at the beginning of this gospel, what has been unfolding for us has been a demonstration of Jesus. John's objective in showing us Jesus, he he reveals in chapter 20. He wants us, the reader of this gospel, to believe that Jesus is the Christ. He wants us to know that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing in him, we may have eternal life in his name. But related to the matter of kingdoms, to believe that Jesus is the Christ is to submit to him as the only king of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of man will not forever coexist. So where we are today, where people are when they are confronted by this passage of Scripture, by the whole of Scripture, when confronted with the truth that Jesus is king, we must make a choice to submit to his rule. And so the question for us is, where do you stand today in relation to Jesus as king? Now, in our text, we saw that Jesus said to Pilate, when he said that, my kingdom is not of this world, he did not mean that he did not have the right to rule the world. But what he meant was that his kingdom could not be compared to the merely human kingdoms, like the one that Pilate, as a governor of Rome, represented. Because Jesus' kingdom is the kingdom to end all kingdoms, the one eternal, righteous, joyfully glorious place of forever peace. Because God, by his intention and plan, because God would truly dwell with man. Now, we're drilling down into this text as we look at what is happening here, Jesus on trial before Pilate. As we look at this exchange between Pilate and Jesus, we see what is in view is a contrast between the kingdom of man, that's exemplified by Pilate representing Rome, but also the kingdom of man uh, represented by the Jewish religious leaders who had colluded with Rome, contrasting that with the true kingdom of God. So for our study this morning, I I want you to note just three things about Jesus' kingdom. And I take these from unpacking this text this morning. Jesus' kingdom. So I'll tell you them in a moment. But as we think about what it means 
to submit to Jesus King as King, we come to understand that Jesus' kingdom is marked by righteousness. That's the first thing. Second, Jesus' kingdom is achieved through sacrifice. And third, Jesus' kingdom is anchored on what is true. What is true. First, Jesus' kingdom is marked by righteousness in comparison to the kingdoms of the world, the kingdoms of men. Jesus' kingdom is marked by righteousness. Perhaps you're familiar with uh, Niccolo Machiavelli. Some of you perhaps studied him in school. He was a, a Renaissance political philosopher in the 15th and 16th century. He is, uh, he is popularly known for his writings, uh, most notably The Prince. Uh, what he is known for, maybe from a, a popular perspective and, and kind of pejoratively in the negative, he is known for a, a maxim, the ends justify the means. Have you heard that expression? The idea that to rule effectively, to, to hold on to power, you have to be willing to set aside private morality for the greater end of maintaining power. So, so as a, a, a ruler, he would argue that you would have to be willing to engage in fraud, use brute force and violence as the means of holding on to the kingdom. So to do like that is Machiavellian, perhaps you've heard that expression. And that philosophy, since the beginning of time, has marked what uh, is the kingdom of men. And we could say, anachronistically, that Jewish leaders were Machiavellian. Well, look at what they did at the arrest of Jesus. They were concerned in verse 28. They, they didn't enter, look at this. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters. Why? They had this concern for their personal morality. Going into the house of a Gentile would make them ceremonially unclean for the Passover. Well, we can't do that. They're about to celebrate this meal that represented the, the greatest deliverance of the people of God from slavery, bondage to Pharaoh, but also the beginning point of, of receiving the law of God, the thing that constituted them as the people of God, is God graciously said, I will be your God, you will be my people. The Passover marked the beginning of that whole event to pull them together as the people of God. And in the midst of this desire to, to keep ceremonially clean so that they could participate in this holy high day, they have plotted to put Jesus to death. Now, Pilate, for his part, he's pretending to be a man concerned about law. He wants something substantial as a reason to put Jesus to death. And through this trial, he even says he finds no guilt in him. Pilate, he goes outside and he says to the, to the, to the religious leaders, what, what accusation do you bring against this man? Verse 29, verse 30, they answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. That's the Jewish religious leaders. If he weren't, wasn't doing evil, we wouldn't have given him up to you. That's not an answer. They're saying to Pilate, just trust us, he's evil, you need to put him to death. We'll handle the details. You just have him executed. Thank you very much. 
How did they decide he was evil? How did they decide that Jesus was evil? They didn't even actually have any evidence, but they tried to manufacture something. Matthew's gospel tells us that the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. They didn't even want true testimony. Make something up. It doesn't matter. We just need him to die. So in the sinfully deceived minds of these Jewish religious leaders, they thought they had a righteous intent, right? A righteous goal. Get rid of Jesus. In their minds, he's, a, he's an imposter. He's a false messiah. But they're willing to use unrighteous means to do away with him. Isn't this how the world does things? How earthly kingdoms operate? Even tacitly approved of in this nation. We see this played out every day in the political realm, don't we? Power is the goal, right? So what do you do? You, you list off the things that your opponent has said or done. You mischaracterize them. You, you draw conclusions about their meaning and motive and destroy the character Sometimes this gets played out in office politics, doesn't it? And sadly, sometimes Christians even do this to each other. He offended me. She ignored me. Then you tell someone else, well, that's just the way she is. He's so self-absorbed. He's so arrogant. Listen, A righteous goal, a righteous goal is never helped by unrighteous means. So if you have to do something wrong to get the thing that you want, the thing that you want isn't right either. Jesus has a different ethic in his kingdom, doesn't he? He tells us if you're slandered, you don't slander in return. He says if someone strikes you, whether physically or even verbally, you do not return evil for evil. Jesus' kingdom, alternatively, unlike the kingdoms of the world, is marked by righteousness through and through. It's what he calls us to as his people. Jesus said in Luke 6, love your enemies and do good. Love your enemies. Do good, lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. You will prove yourself to be sons of the Most High if you show love to your enemy, if you do good to those who hate you, if you expect nothing in return to those you lend. Because just like God is kind to those who are ungrateful and evil, Jesus call for citizens of his kingdom is to do likewise. You know, the perfect display of righteousness, God's righteousness, was what Jesus accomplished at the cross. I so often go to this passage in the beginning of Romans 1, 16 and 17, but listen, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 17, 
For in it, this message of Jesus, this truth, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. See, this gospel, this good news of the kingdom, this message that Jesus, the Son of God, came to the world, sacrificed his own life, is proof of God's righteousness, that God demands a reckoning for sin. God demands a reckoning for your sin and mine. But the righteousness of God was poured out on the son who willingly took the consequence for our unrighteousness to himself. And God's righteousness then accrues to you and me when we by faith believe. We get to live by faith in Jesus. And this is what it means to be part of the kingdom of God. Jesus' kingdom is marked by righteousness. Are you this morning among the righteous. No, I don't mean, is your life all put together and perfect? No, I don't mean that. I mean, have you looked to Jesus? Have you looked to him to be counted righteous in God's sight by putting your full faith in him? That is the only way, friend, that you will be acceptable to God. Put your trust in Jesus today. Second, Jesus' kingdom is achieved through sacrifice. Through sacrifice. Now, the the idea that you achieve great things through sacrifice, that's not a, a foreign concept to the world. We know lots of people who have achieved great things through sacrifice. And and primarily, and we're all told this as as children. If you want to accomplish something, you have to give up things, right? You give up comfort and leisure to succeed at business or sport. You were told if you, if you competed at the state level in your sport, you, you were giving up TV time, you were giving up leisure, you're giving up hanging out with your friends, and you were, you were working out, you were training. The same is true if you've started a business. There are a lot of things you could have done. You give up immediate rewards for a later and better reward. Some make bad sacrifices. Years ago when I was in the business world, uh, I read an author, Tom Peters, some of you who have read that stuff, uh, but he sacrificed his own family for the sake of succeeding in business. He said that that's what was required. But none of those sacrifices are even remotely close to the way that Jesus sacrifices for his own kingdom. Jesus takes sacrifice to the extreme and what he does, we've already talked about it, he puts himself in the place to bear the highest cost. Verse 36, look at the text of the Bible. He understands, of course, everything, but he is communicating to Pilate the difference. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. In other words, he's saying, I am not fighting 
I am not resisting being delivered over to the Jews. In fact, I am doing everything to ensure that I will be delivered over to the Jews. My kingdom is not from the world. So the Jews, meaning the Jewish religious leaders, that was his intention all along. He knew that his kingdom could not be established by, by earthly human means. He knew that he had to sacrifice his very life so that we could be freed from the consequence of our own sin and then included in his kingdom. Now contrast that with the kingdom of man. This is kingdoms in conflict, right? We're seeing on display how Jesus describes his kingdom versus the very power of the kingdoms of man coming to bear on Jesus. The way that the Roman Empire came to be and the way, in fact, that the Jewish leaders hoped to establish themselves. Now, for its part, Rome, Rome really, all they really cared about was this thing called Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. The peace of Rome was achieved through power and through domination and exploitation. Their prodigious army would, would, would trample through and trample down anyone in sight and demand allegiance to Rome through taxation, and in exchange, they would be at peace. Give up everything. Bow the knee to the Roman emperor, and it'll be all quiet for you. We'll protect you. Give up your identity. Give up everything that you love. They had already dominated the Jewish people. They had been in domination. They took that over from previous empires, But the Jewish people had no no sense of self-rule, not since 600 B.C. And Rome was now dominating them. And for the sake of the Jews and their understanding of their own power, their control over their own countrymen, the means by which they would do that, they had this Jewish ruling council called the Sanhedrin. It was composed of Sadducees and the priestly class and a party of Pharisees. And they ultimately colluded with Rome so that they could exercise their own authority over the Jewish people. Now, the the Sadducees, I'll just give you a little background, the priests as well, they didn't expect a Messiah. They saw Jesus simply as a threat to their own power. The Pharisees, however, did have an expectation of a Messiah from Scripture, but they rejected the very Messiah that they said they were waiting for. And these Jewish religious leaders had grown so drunk on power that they, that they used any and every means to subjugate the people. They told people, they told the Jews that they were to love God. But what they really cared about was that the people obeyed them. And again, as I said, and since Rome was the dominant world empire, it was expedient for these this Jewish ruling class to work with with them to accomplish their own means. But in both cases, whether it's Rome or the Jewish religious leaders, they use power and domination, not a hint of self-sacrifice. And so that contrasts with the way Jesus describes the interests and establishment of his own kingdom. It would ultimately be achieved through his own sacrifice. That's why he told Peter back in verse 11, Peter's swinging his sword and cuts off Malchus's ear. Jesus says, put that sword away. That's not how we're getting this thing done. My paraphrase, of course. 
Jesus never had to, of course, earn his authority before men. His authority over all things was ordained by God before the world was created. And the very fact that Jesus was there at creation, speaking it into existence, including the men and women who would ultimately turn on him and spit at him, he didn't need to earn authority. He owned it before the world was created. And that's why when the religious leaders had earlier asked him about it, he told them about the kingdom of God, that it wasn't what they would have expected. I want to take you back to Luke 17. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. What way would the Roman think of the kingdom of God to, be, to come to be observed? What, you could, what would you observe? Well, there's an army. There's, a, there's, there's some political leadership. There's, no, Jesus says it's not coming in a way, ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is or, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. See, Jesus wasn't interested in staking out a claim on a piece of land. He wanted the hearts of men and women. He wanted them and he wants us to know his grace. That, that grace, that, that love is, is, a, is a stark contrast to the destructive nature of any other kind of authority. It's a stark contrast to the, the, any other kind of power. Any other kind of, of scheming that has its origins in the whispers of the serpent who spoke to Adam and said, did God really say? That led to paradise lost. Jesus often painted a picture of that contrast. And each time he offered a better alternative in himself. Back in John 10, Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. No doubt he's speaking about the evil one, Satan. The one behind all of the earthly kingdoms. The one stirring up people against people. Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life, lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus' kingdom is achieved through his own sacrifice. It's an otherworldly kingdom because he embodies the perfect character of God, the, the unmitigated joy, the everlasting peace, the love and fellowship of God. When it soaks into people, into God's people, it transforms them and then it oozes out to one another, doesn't it? Only Jesus offers that. Don't you want that kingdom? Don't you long for that kind of rule? You see, the way, the way we get to participate in that kingdom is to give up any idea that we might rule ourselves. And we look to Jesus and his sacrifice. But it requires a response from us. Because if you hold on, if you cling to the world and its purposes and its kingdom and its priorities, if you hold on to those things, you will lose the very thing you're seeking. 
Jesus said, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. There is only one way to find yourself in the kingdom of God. It's to give up all thought of self-rule. To give up the entirety of your ownership of yourself to Jesus. To hate your life in this world. Not to, not to be self-destructive. That's not what he's talking about. But to say in comparison, in comparison, what is the most important thing? To say, set it all aside. Trust in Jesus. Well, third, Jesus' kingdom is anchored on what is true. What is true? Foundations matter. Um, but sometimes, even our best foundations that we construct, humanly speaking, don't do us any good. If you were in L.A. in 1994, uh, perhaps some of you were possibly there. Perhaps you remember the Northridge earthquake, 6.6 magnitude. And I, I remember seeing it in the news, buildings and bridges collapsed. 33 people lost their lives. Many, many were injured. Now, I've never experienced that kind of feeling where, where the earth is giving way. And I can't imagine the horror it would be to be on the bridge when it collapses or to be under it when it's coming down on you or to be in that building that falls in on itself. The thing that you think is so strong and so foundational gives way underneath you. What is there? Everything that might have felt immovable can crumble. See, if you have no sure foundation, you don't really have any security at all, do you? And this really is the nature of the kingdoms of man. I said this in the beginning, but every civilization that, is, that has ever been has crumbled under the weight of its own decadence. Self-serving, self-indulgent motives lead to self-destruction. And that was Rome. They didn't last. We know that from history. They felt strong in the first century, but by the fourth century, they were a shadow of their former self. And that was the Jewish leaders as well. What they were trying to build was on a shaky foundation. A shaky foundation of self-indulgence, power-grabbing, self-aggrandizement, dominating people. These Jewish leaders who said they represented God became the objects of their own worship. They turned their attention from the Lord and turned it on themselves and used God and used his word as a kind of a, a pawn for their own evil means, evil ends. But Jesus' kingdom would be different. This is what the Lord said through the prophet Isaiah to prepare us, to prepare his people. 28.16, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And we look at back at our text now. Look at what Jesus said. For this purpose, and for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness 
to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. The very foundation of the kingdom of God, the anchor is the things that Jesus says, the entirety of the word of God. And everyone who would be included in the kingdom of God are those who would listen to his voice. Now, I think, I think at some level, Pilate understood what Jesus was saying. He understood the value of truth, but he did not agree. He was Machiavellian. Rome's anchor was power and dominance. And so he even asks Jesus this rhetorical question, I think, or maybe a mocking question. Verse 38, to Jesus he says, what is truth? Pilate had no interest in truth. The Jewish leaders who brought Jesus to Pilate, they had no interest in truth. They were willing to do and say anything to get rid of Jesus. Pilate himself was willing to execute Jesus just simply if it could mean uh, the keeping of his own power. As the Roman emperor looking on what he does in that part of, of the world, all the emperor cares about is keep the peace. Keep the peace. And if it means killing off this Messiah guy, whatever it takes, he has no interest in truth. When he asks what is truth, he had no idea that the embodiment of truth was sitting right in front of him. Now what is the truth to which Jesus bears witness? What is that truth? Jesus is the revelation of God himself. Jesus is the revelation of the truth that God is gracious and merciful and abounding in steadfast love. It's how John introduced Jesus to us at the beginning of this gospel. He tells us there that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And this, this truth, the fact of Jesus This truth has the power to free people from bondage. The anchor of the kingdom of God is the truth that Jesus is the Christ. What Peter declared to Jesus, that Jesus says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, when Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Yes, Peter, Jesus said, that's right. And as the Christ, Jesus came to bear the punishment for all of us as sinners, all who would put their faith in him. Jesus secured in his own death the pardon for sin. He did it alone. And believing the word about Jesus, the truth of who he is, is what is the way to eternal life, entrance into the eternal kingdom of God. Back in John 8, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Free. 
That's how Jesus builds his kingdom. The kingdom of God is anchored in that truth that he is God incarnate. He is the Christ, that he is the son of the living God. And if you have believed this, if you have surrendered yourself to Jesus, the king, it makes you a citizen of the new kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. The apostle Paul tells us what we can expect because we do not live in the fully realized kingdom of God, do we? You and I, even if we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we still live in the kingdom of this world and we have to behave in a way, a respectful way to the kingdom of man, all the while holding our first allegiance to the kingdom of heaven. The apostle Paul tells us what we will expect Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven. Your passport says heaven. Because Jesus died and rose again. Your passport says heaven. And you belong there. But we're still sojourners. We're still strangers and aliens in this land. We exist in the kingdoms of men, representing the kingdom of heaven, yes. But we don't have all of the benefits of the kingdom of heaven yet. But here, here's what Paul says. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what we can expect. Who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Do you see what we have in Jesus? There's an eternal promise of a body like his. And he will come again one day, flesh in his flesh, to this world. And at that time when he shows up, everything that has breath will acknowledge who he is and bow the knee to him and declare that he is Lord. And as Bob read at the beginning, it will be that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Everything we see will be subjected to Jesus when he returns. But until that day, we're aliens and strangers in a foreign land and we await Jesus' return so what do we do? Well, if you're in the kingdom of heaven by faith in Jesus, we live like we belong to him. Because the kingdom of heaven, Jesus' kingdom, is, is one marked by righteousness. And we know there's, there's a great deal of injustice in the world. We see it. We long to fix it, but... We can't. But what we can do, what we can do as the people of God is put on display what it looks like to be the people of God. So our lives in this world need to be marked by righteousness. Yes, we've been given the righteousness of Jesus to stand before God. But as we, as we continue to live in this world daily, we need to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus so that what shows up in our lives is real, present, righteous behavior. 
So when the world is arguing with each other, when the world looks at us, they see unity. When the world is divided because of the color of people's skin, we show because of Jesus what it looks like to love one another. Well, the kingdoms of the world, they're established through power and domination. But because the kingdom of heaven, Jesus' kingdom, is is achieved through sacrifice, we, likewise, must reflect that. As we look to Jesus and his sacrifice for us, putting our full faith in what he has accomplished at the cross to make us righteous in God's sight, yes, we see that sacrifice and it And it brings to us a a new ethic, a new way of behaving. We sacrifice for one another. We love one another. We serve one another. We are willing to be inconvenienced. We forgive one another. Because we're citizens of heaven and because Jesus' sacrifice was for us, our lives are now marked by personal sacrifice. First, giving up our own very lives to the Lord Jesus and then being willing to sacrifice for one another. And third, because Jesus' kingdom is anchored on what is true, the most important thing that we can do while we live in this world is declare the good news of the kingdom. So as we gather together this morning, we're declaring Jesus is the Christ. And if the world wants to know anything from us, it's not that we think we're better. Bad message. We don't think we're better. If the world needs to hear anything from us, it's not how holy we think we are. That's not a great message because they will show us how unholy we are at times. No, the message that we have is that God was merciful to us and he did not count our sin against us And the fact is, Jesus is the one. Jesus is the king to whom we submit because he sacrificed his very life for us to include us in the family of God. And so the best thing that we can do is declare Jesus is the Christ. So every time we gather, we're going to say, Jesus is the Christ. Submit to him as Lord. Trust him and be counted righteous in God's sight. Turn to him. And if you're listening at home or somewhere across the world, turn to Jesus. The most important message that we have is trust him. So what can we do? We can't fix the kingdoms of this world, can we? As much as we'd like to, and I'm not not saying don't work for good in society. I'm not saying that. But ultimately, like Rome, America will eventually crumble under its own decadence. And that would be true for every other kingdom on the earth as well. The only sure foundation we have is that we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we can do good in the world, yes, 
But the best thing we can do is tell people about him. So may we be people who represent the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, there are so many things that we do at times personally that compromise the message of the kingdom. Lord, would you continue to do your work of of making us more like Jesus, making us more loving, more sacrificial. Lord, we want the world to know through us that there's a better, a better kingdom, a better country. So help us to be to be generous with that message, to tell anyone who may ask where our hope is. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would be glorified through us. We pray it for your glory, Jesus. Amen.